It is day 11 of the Black Jackson Estate presents the 12 days of Christmas. That means it is Christmas Eve and tomorrow is that special and magical day where all the kids are excited. They're going to get up way too early, excited to open all the gifts that they get. Every day is a gift for these kids because they don't pay for nothing. But tomorrow they're extra, extra on it because of all the new things and expensive gifts they're going to get from their parents. And hopefully us adults are going to get some nice, nice gifts as well. Or at least we can ask Santa for some things we'd like to have under our tree next year. If you could say there's one thing, Santa, you can put under my tree for next year. User two, what would you ask Santa to bring you for 2023? You're over this year. He got you what he got you. You're getting what you're getting. But what's one thing you don't think you asked for, but you'd like to have in the year to come next Christmas? A million dollars. That's fair enough. That will wipe out all your debts. New fresh lease on life. Now, is this pre-tax or or this is obviously already taxed income, correct? Correct. All right, we want to, yeah, we want a million already taxed dollars. That's a fair, it's a fair request. User 1.5, what would you want under your Christmas tree next year for Senator to bring you? Yeah, I want, I don't need anything under my tree. I need it in my cash app. I think I have already made this very clear to you people. Send it to my cash app. Put my name on it. All y'all hoes just want money. That's That's all y'all want. That's all we want. That's all we want. Y'all don't want no man. You don't want no. (laughs) No. Nope. I can just take the money Uh, and buy a dick off of Amazon. Come on. We are living. Not interested in the man. It's because of all the stress that comes with the man. The money don't come with no stress. The money, they say more money, more problems, but I haven't gotten there yet. I'm you haven't to experienced I'm trying to see some. experienced it. Yeah, I'm trying to see some. Well, I feel you. I think if I could have one thing under my tree, whoo, I don't think it would be money, but I need to take a rain check on telling y'all what that is. I'll tell you next year. I'll tell you and, and I'll write Santa my Christmas list. But at either rate, we are moving into day 11. Merry Christmas to everybody that's celebrating. Happy Hanukkah that's still happening as well. Kwanzaa is soon to come up. If you're celebrating or if you're just relaxing, we hope you're enjoying the season, that you are getting a chance to experience some relaxation and some peace in your life. Um, And that if This is a tough time of the year. Please, we hope that this podcast has been able to be a bright spot and to bring you some joy. If it's done that, then I feel like we've done our job. I think the users would agree to that. So we're moving into day 11, which is all about the pre-Motown years with the Jackson 5's very first record label, Steel Town Records. User 1.5, take it away. All right, so I'm really excited to kind of unpack Steeltown Records for you guys. Obviously, we are doing these episodes for the 12 days because we don't feel that it's enough content to do a full episode, but we do want to give credit where credit is due. And Steeltown Records is the original, the first, the Uno record label for the Jackson 5. Users, does anybody know who? The big dog was at Steel Town Records. Never cared. <laughs> uh, there's actually two no! big dogs at, at Steel Town. There were two big dogs. It was a, it was co-founded by at least two guys, 
And um, but I don't remember that. I don't know their name. I just know that off the fact that we're doing this episode and I remember reading it, but I don't remember their names. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, this is a real black venture. Uh, I'm going to say that off top. That's when you have a bunch of people, some money who decide to go in together and do something. And all of the partners may or may not work, but everybody thought it was a good idea and they put their little money in. Okay, so Steel Time Records was an American record company located in Gary, Indiana. It was founded in 1966 by William Adams. He was also known as Gordon Keith, and it was co-owned along with Gordon Keith, uh, with Ben Brown, Maurice Rogers, Willie Spencer, and Lou Ludy D. Washington. It was active from 1966 to 1972, and it is the record company who gave the Jackson 5 their start in the music industry. Now, Michael Jackson's first song with Steel Town Records was released on January 31st, 1968 by Gordon Keith. He was actually the writer and producer on this song, and it is entitled... Big Boy. Users, what do you guys think about Big Boy? Have we all heard it? What do we think about it? It's an adorable little song. Yeah, it's a cute little bop. It's cute. Yeah, so Big Boy is really cute. He's basically saying, like, I'm a big boy now, so you should be, you know, with it, girl. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tidbit, actually, um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame museum excuse me owns one of the original steel town big boy slash you change me records it is record number 681 and the single was on this museum in 2010 there is a steel town records movie in the works just in case y'all wanted to watch it it's set to be released. I want to see it. Don't do that. Yeah. Set to I be released. Be, in that's gonna be good. What do y'all think it's gonna air? It's gonna be. It's gonna be like a lifetime movie. No, it's gonna be on BET. I can. It needs to be on, on BET, BET, or it just needs to get the straight to streaming treatment um, yeah, and let us go Amazon. ahead and yeah, give me an Amazon or whatever. But I think that I don't like. I want to give Steel Steel Town Records their props because Joe was smart. He was like. I need to get my boys on a record label. It'll be good training for where I want them to go, which is Motown. And I want to say this, Still Time Records signed the Jackson after Barry Gordy had turned them down as many as eight times prior. Yeah. So they were they were striking out at Motown, which is where Joe really wanted to get them. They were striking out with other labels and Steel Town Records signed them. And apparently they wanted to sign them to a longer contract, but Joe was like, nah, six months because he didn't want to be tied down if Motown came a calling and how yep. smart was that? Because Motown did come a calling after in, in 1968. Right. But they had already, um, they, that kept them from having to be tied down with all this getting out of their contract with still time records and da, 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 da. So I actually think still time records deserves a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so does Joe Jackson, um, for getting his kids in position. And I think sometimes we underestimate, we got to do a whole episode on Joe. And Katie. But I think sometimes we underestimate how important it is to have the foresight to get in position. So if I stay ready, I ain't got to get ready. Amen. Joe was always constantly in that mind frame with his kids. And I think that Still Time Records is a good testament to that. 
Um, I think Mr. Keith was also a steel work, um, a mill worker, um, steel town like Motown. We're talking about steel mills and Motown was the motor city. So these these names, you say, ha ha, you know, they're playing off of what the, their areas are known for. But yeah, it's kind of like a big deal, I think. Um, when they got when they got this contract. And can I give it a little tidbit? I bet you guys did not know, or I just learned this. Um, actually, do you have the book Michael Jackson Inc.? I got this a long time ago. I read it very long ago. Do you have this one? Yes, I've never finished it. Okay. So in this book, they have a little section where they're talking about the Steel Town, the Steel Town record years. And of course, it's not that long. They were under a six-month six contract. Um and the, the the boys were hawking their record while when they went to shows and stuff. And that uh, Gordon Keith actually discovered them from seeing their flyers that were tacked onto the local telephone poles. So you remember, like back in the day, people would put like, "Have you seen this kid?" or like their little advertisements on telephone poles. I don't know if people still do it now. I don't really see a lot of that, but that's how he found out about them. Um, and this is what I found interesting: Joe worked at a steel mill, y'all, right? Joe made $30 a day working the crane. His boys in this time period were on the road making like 500 a show. So very quickly, the the financial dynamics in the Jackson's house switched from Joe's efforts in the sense of his work, but Joe was definitely working and prepared his kids to these kids making $500 for uh, what an hour set, 30 minutes set, whatever, at a gig. That's crazy. Well, that's what Michael said in his letter to Bill Bray. My, you know, Joseph only saw me as a way to make money. And well, there's there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> with Michael. <laughs> but that's these but, yeah. years. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, and, and to add to the story that you told about Gordon Keith, he actually said that he... Was he so he apparently was notoriously very picky about the acts that he signed. If you didn't have a good work ethic, and he had various ways of testing your work ethic, okay. But if you didn't have a good work ethic, he did not want to sign you because he only wanted artists that were hungry. And so when he saw these posters or these placards around Gary advertising performances by the Jackson Five, he was really, what really got him was the frequency that he was seeing these signs and the regularity that he was seeing these signs and the number of dates that these boys were working. And so he took that as a sign that they had a high level of commitment to their music. And that's why he wanted to talk to Joseph to ask if they wanted to sign with his records. And, and let's be clear, other no one else would sign the Jackson 5 at this time. Gordon Keith took a chance on them to sign them with Steel Town Records. And he produced four tracks for these boys. And... In the in the six month period that they had on their contract, so he was really the beginning, right? He was he was their Barry Gordy before they got to Motown, and he d- definitely deserves credit. I want to read you guys an excerpt from a couple of different points and talk about it. The first thing I want to read you guys is from Gordon Keith himself as he's talking about going to the Jackson's home at 2300 Jackson Street and watching them practice 
before he signed them. So he says they set up right in the living room. The furniture was pushed back. And we all know that this is true from the stories that the other that the other uh, siblings have told. They put their equipment. They put um, they excuse me. They and their equipment took up pretty much the whole room. The whole family was there. Janet was a babe in arms. They were getting ready, and there was a thick cord stretched between two of the amps Michael was near, and it came up to his chest. And so Gordon says from where he was standing, without a running start, he jumped straight up, flat-footed, in position, over the cord, cleared it, And he said, from that point on, Michael had all of his attention. He said, I knew that I was looking at a boy who was superhuman. When they sang, Michael sang like an angel. He said, Jermaine had a great voice too. And Jackie could carry a little tone. Marlon could dance a little bit. But Michael, when he danced, when he sang, he blew away James Brown, Jackie Wilson, Fred Astaire, and anyone else you can name. So he was impressed by Michael the same way that we were all impressed by little Michael Jackson when he saw him. What do you think about what Gordon Keith has to say about the first time he saw Michael Jackson? He sound thirsty as hell. <laughs> he knew. It's the he same knew. way. Um, he knew it's the same way uh, Jermaine said when, when um, Joe heard Michael sing like for real, for real, his eyes lit up wide as saucers. As mm-hmm. uh, big as a Cheshire cat. I mean, you know, listen. Not Cheshire. You, 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 <laughs> Joe said Michael, Joe said Michael didn't even know how good he was because everything that came out of him was perfect. That's what Joe said. Mm. Now, he said this in 2012. And that, you know, I don't know if Michael ever got to hear him say something like that in his lifetime. I really hope so. But what a statement to make about a child and their talent. That's God-given gift. And Joe could recognize that. And of course he saw a way. I mean, let's let's talk about this as we're also talking about Steel Town Records because Joe is very instrumental here. And I know you're going to read a part of Jermaine's book as well. But let me ask y'all this. Do you think it was wrong for Joe to view his children and to say these kids are a way to lift this entire family out of a level of poverty that is perpetual, that goes from generation to generation unless someone snaps it. And the snap is always hard and it has to be done in a big way. We know that that's just true, period, especially in Black families. just You just stay poor generation after generation after generation unless someone snaps it. And he snapped it for everybody in the house. Do you think it's wrong for him to have viewed his children in that way? Or do you think it's a it's bigger than it's more to it like what do you what do y'all think it's It's definitely yeah it's more to it for sure but also you don't want kids to you want kids to be able to be kids because being an adult is hard enough and there's plenty of years of being an adult you know that innocence of youth that most of us were able to have these kids didn't have it they were singing in strip clubs you know so I think that Mike, Michael especially seemed to to take it the hardest. And maybe he was the most sensitive out of all of them. But I understand as a parent, and I'm a parent, I understand wanting better for your kids and wanting to cultivate greatness in them when you see it. 
And so I don't ever think people villainize Joe so much and we love him here. We love him over here. Okay. Let me make that clear. Y'all we love Joe Jackson, but he was doing the best he could with what he had and with the talent that he saw in his kids. And without him, we would have never gotten the Jackson five. We've never gotten the Jacksons, Janet, Rebe. Right. You don't get none you know? of this, right? Without him and Katie, you know, and and definitely Joe driving the career for the career piece. And but what do you what do you think, user two? I think you said it's a little above. What is your kind of your take on it? Because Joe gets demonized a lot. And this is a big part of it, right? He saw his kids as a cash cow. But like, how do you and uh, you know? And I think I want you to speak on this, too, because you've talked about this a couple of times on different episodes, how Michael maybe couldn't see certain things like a bigger picture or he was just starting to see some of the bigger picture as he got older. What What's, what's your take? I think when you exploit a child's passion. You have to be very cognizant of, um, you know, the how they are moving through that and how you may or may not be projecting onto them. And I think in Michael's instant, he wanted to be an entertainer. He wanted to sing with his brothers. He wanted to make it big. And these accomplishments that many of us um, watched him accomplish those are things most people <laughs> never get to check off their to-do list. And Michael and his brothers were able to check these things off. And um, it's that is something to be commended, where your kids were dreaming big and they actually accomplished what they wanted. But when the monetization comes in and, you know, he's paying the bills and you begin to rely on this young man, you begin to lean on him, you need him to do X amount of shows a year to make sure that the mortgage is covered. That's when you cross into a tricky territory. And I believe Joseph was trying to balance a household and he was trying to uh, balance a band. And there was a lot of crossover there and the lines get blurred. And whether he intended to make Michael feel like a breadwinner or not, I think he knew very early on that circumstances change when I go to work because Joseph had us warming up the VW van and riding from Gary to Chicago with no heat. But when I go out and do my thing, we get record deals and we get to stay at Diana Ross's house. And now we got our own house and now we got our own security. <laughs> Shit starts to change. And I think I don't think he was a dumb child. I think all the yeah. the boys in particular started to notice that. But for Michael, it became a bit of a burden. And that's where it crossed over for Joe. Yeah, I think you both are, are saying something for real here, right? I think a lot of times, especially in the Michael space of things, the fans can be very, very, to me, I find it overly judgmental or cruel when it comes to Joe. Like, oh, he didn't love his kids. People say these sorts of things. Oh, he didn't care about his kids. I was like, Wow. Are you serious? This man was in the field. He would get laid off a bunch because that's how it worked back in the day. Y'all ever seen Good Times? Y'all ever seen James? That this is that nigga stayed James getting laid stayed off with a layoff, honey. He never have. <laughs> like, he won't never work in. This was just a, a scratching and surviving. This was and this was the Gary Indiana the version. Whole family. 
Right. That's the other thing. And like, I think all the the books that we've read between Michael, LaToya, and Jermaine, Catherine, I think oh, everybody we're just made for it. Janet. Yeah, you know, Janet's done every. She's written Ooh, all around. Janet. She's written circles around. Give us that Janet. book, Janet, please. But go ahead, use it too. They all made it very clear. Like we tried to make life as easy as possible, so that when Joseph got home, he didn't have a fucking attitude. Because if he had an attitude, everybody's day was ruined. <laughs> and, I mean, so that was a lot. He was getting laid off all the time. So. A lot. And and what did they say? They knew when he had got laid off. He didn't talk about it with his kids because what man does, right? But except for James, James, his kids would be in the loop because Florida made sure. But <laughs> but Joe, they just said they would be eating a lot more potatoes and they knew he was working the fields. <laughs> you know, like beans. Right. You know, it's like, so can we do a whole man- episode I'm sorry. Why don't we talk about Michael? But we need to do a whole episode on how Florida kept that that household in <laughs> She's really the reason. Okay. Oh, Florida. She kept everybody stressed. Remember Black Jesus? Jesus. Lord, yes. Black yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But, anyway, you know, but Joe, you know, I think sometimes we can, the fans can be, in looking at Michael's life and looking at the things Michael said, sometimes it can be overly critical of Joe and what I really like to see, and I know we're talking about Steel Town, but this period is such a Joe Jackson intensive period because he's trying to make his kid get his kids to the next level. And so this, I think, even more than once we get to Motown, the, the conversation shifts to like Barry Gordy and Diana Ross. This is Joe Jackson's domain. The, the gritty era is Joe's era, the grit where you got to play these raggedy ass venues and you got to play strip clubs and you're playing places that no children should be in. You're making certain sacrifices that he feels without the sacrifice. Maybe my kids don't get there and I got to get them out of Gary. I got to get them out of what, what they're going to inherit from me, which is a steel mill job or some, you know, some manual labor job where it's going to, life's going to be tough. And I think sometimes People just rag on this guy, but it's like, wow, how many other parents invest in their kids in this way? Tito and them broke that that string on that guitar. He was like, all right, show me what you can do. And a couple of days later, he came home with guitars for them to have and said, let's Michael go. Michael wasn't going to make it at the steel mill. He wasn't oh, going to no. no. Marlon no, wouldn't have made it at the steel no. mill neither. No. The they other three, they would have figured it out. Jermaine would have hated it, but. Yeah, would have hated it. So yeah, so this is really Joe Jackson's, like, he put his head down. There are sacrifices that he never talked about that we'll never know about unless unless one of his children tell us that he made for his family. And I think that's where some of the criticism takes a turn where it's like, "Mm, well, we don't have the full story. And even the pieces of the story we have, maybe fans should be a little more discerning and critique of you know critiquing of the, the those facts so that you can get a better picture for sure there are things that make you go oh my god joe for real but then there's stuff that makes you go wow how many fathers are not there for their kids at all he had nine he had nine house. and was continuously getting laid off let me tell you prayers it was katie because katie was in there praying and making that food work <laughs> dear jehovah <laughs> She's the little Joe. Happiness is a place called Joe. <laughs> it's a place called Joe. Go ahead, use a 1.5. So, 
So I want to kind of put a nice little bow on Steel Town by reading some excerpts from Michael's book and from Jermaine's book. Now, let me preface it by saying we have already discussed how Michael's autobiography, Moonwalk, is a collection of short prompt answers. Okay, so we don't get a lot of information from Michael about Steel Town, but Michael also was very young. And so his recollection of what was happening at the time may not be as sharp as, let's say, Jermaine or Jackie or Tito, some of the older guys. So I want to read from Michael first from his autobiography, Moonwalk. And Michael says about Steel Town that one day, not long after we'd been doing successfully in Chicago clubs, dad, who I don't know who dad is, I think he means Joseph, brought home a tape of some songs that we'd never heard before. We were accustomed to doing popular stuff off the radio, so we were curious as to why he began playing these songs over and over again, just one guy singing none too well with some guitar chords in the background. Joseph told us that the man on the tape wasn't really a performer, but a songwriter who owned a a recording studio in Gary. His name was Mr. Keith, and he had given us a week to practice his songs to see if we could make a record out of them. Naturally, we were excited. We wanted to make a record, any record. Mr. Keith, like dad, was a mill worker who loved music, only he was more into the recording business end. His studio and label were called Steel Town. Looking back on this, I realized Mr. Keith was just as excited as we were. His studio was downtown, and we went early one Saturday morning before the Roadrunner show, my favorite show at the time. Mr. Keith met us at the door and opened the studio. He showed us a small glass booth with all kinds of equipment in it and explain with the various tasks we were to perform. So he was really excited. You could tell he was excited. And he said that Gordon Keith was excited as well. And I'm sure he was. What do you guys think about what Michael has to say about Steel Town and his recollection of how they got their recording contract? We need more voices. I like what Michael has to say, but he's so young. I need to hear Jackie and Tito and all them. But what Michael has to say is, again, I don't know how to take this book, Moonwalk, because, again, we know that he was, this was kind of a mess as far as getting it together. And it kind of makes me wonder, those words in that sequence, are those Michael's words or are these? Because Jackie like Onassis' said, words. <laughs> Jackie, is that you? Um, <laughs> Jackie's words. I, I feel I think like the, Michael might have shared like the piece about his favorite cartoon being the Roadrunner, I think yeah. like somebody might have asked him verbally and they wrote it down and that was how it was written in the book. Right. I believe the part where he talks about how they were so excited to just hear themselves and how that, that excitement of that moment of hearing yourself on the radio and all that, all that, that yeah, feels really authentic. Oh, you ain't read that yet? No. no. Um. <laughs> we got it yet. That was, Michael didn't say that. Jermaine that was Jermaine. That. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so now I'm going to move on to Jermaine and Jermaine's book, You Are Not Alone, Michael, Through a Brother's Eyes. Jermaine is very wordy, y'all. Bear with me. But Jermaine says this, Joseph never viewed Steel Town as capable players in the big game, but he saw the value of a recording contract. It would lead to local radio airtime. 
Big Boy was our first single released in 1967. According to Keith, it sold an estimated 50,000 copies throughout the Midwest and New York. We even made the best top 20 singles in Jet Magazine. But the greatest moment was when WVON Radio played it for the first time. We huddled around the radio, hardly believing our voices were coming out of that box. It was like the times when you're handed a group photo and the first thing you do is find yourself to see how you look. It was the same with the radio. We listened for our own voices within the harmonies and background ooze. We had worked damn hard in that living room and suddenly we were being broadcast to most of Gary and Chicago we were ecstatic and that is such a sweet passage let me just say I think that is so sweet you can tell how excited Jermaine was just to hear himself on the radio how anybody would be to hear himself on the radio for the first time user two what do you think about Jermaine's take on on Steel Town I think Jermaine gave us a lot of detail I think Jermaine was excited to hear his own voice. Um, <laughs> I think they all were excited. That's so much shade voice, there. But right. <laughs> we love you, Jermaine. No, but I, just, I, I do think it speaks to user one's point. We do need more voices. And if we can ever get that translation of Joseph Jackson's autobiography, I would love to hear him describe this time period in depth because these are kids. They didn't really know what the hell was going on. Right. But they knew they were excited. Right. And they knew that this was a big deal because they had a recording contract, which is something that they had worked hard for. So I'm really excited that they were excited. We got some firsthand accounts of Steel Town users. Is there anything else you guys want to say about Steel Town before no, I got we wrap to up say. this ep- episode? Go ahead. I got something to say about Joe. Oh, Okay. This is a Joe Jackson appreciation episode as well. Joe Jackson made Barry Gordy's job super easy. That was a package deal. That's like buying the damn uh, Lego set and they are, the Legos already put together. You just take it out of the box, already put together. You ain't got to put it together. Mm-hmm. That's all I want to say. Joe made, yes. Joe made Barry Gordy's job easy. I don't know. Y'all can fight me on Joe it. Joe is the Lego master. He Joe is. Joe is the Lego master. Correct. Shout out to Randall. Randy? Lego master. And on that note, we thank you for joining us for day 11 of the Black Jackson Estate Presents, the 12 Days of Christmas. It is Christmas Eve. Make sure you guys leave out your milk and cookie for Santa. And if you don't have some random white man coming in your house in the middle of the night, good for you. We will see you tomorrow, Christmas Day, for day 12 of the 12 Days of Christmas. <laughs>